All right, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. This is going to be an all Arlen Walker episode. <laughs> uh, sorry, guys. There, I got a ton of messages, and I have no excuse because I send more messages uh, than I ever get, and uh, you guys all respond back to them. So, uh, uh, sorry, I'm a bit behind. I got uh, wrapped up in some stuff, but I am cranking through. Uh, so you'll probably see a couple of podcasts in a row, hopefully. Uh, anyways, uh, this is a bunch of messages about different things, topics we were talking about. Some really, really cool insight from Arlen, and uh, yeah, uh, let's get to it. Oh, <laughs> I guess I should have mentioned, although I would assume anybody listening to this knows who Arlen Walk is, but uh, he is the host of Live from Pelham's Wasteland, which is a podcast and YouTube channel. Check those out. Hey, Daniel, it's Arlen. Haven't called in in a little while, so I thought I would call in. As for your comments on um, mid-maxing and power gaming and all that sort of stuff, I totally agree with your comments about like how just how unfun it is to be at a table where you've agreed to play Jimmy Olsen and somebody shows up to play Superman, especially because, and I think this is something that you didn't mention as much but is worth um, sharing, in my experience, a lot of the people that are really into min-maxing can also be pretty, for lack of a better term, myopic about the limitations on that min-maxing. That I don't know how many times I've encountered somebody who's like, oh, this you know badass build is going to make me into a total badass. And then you actually read the rules related to something. It's like, okay, you're going to be a badass some of the time. But the designers knew that people were going to try to do this. And you're not going to be a badass all the time. So like trip trip fighters are I think a really good example in kind of third edition era because I've been playing some third edition era games and reading some games like that and yes trip fighters are powerful and it is kind of realistic when you think about it because in certainly in particular periods of um, actual medieval warfare the way that for instance you deal with somebody in heavy plate armor is you trip them or you knock them over or whatever and then finish them on the ground while they can't move basically rather than trying to do a stand-up fight so it's i'm doing air quotes realistic in a way the problem is when somebody comes to the table like oh i read the adventure path and we're playing facing almost all humanoids so i built a trip fighter and it's like okay all you've done is made it so that the dungeon master has to throw in you know four-legged monsters so that they get their bonus versus being tripped or you're just going to trip everything and make the encounters unfun who want a chance for themselves to shine. And of course it is also tied to the idea of like, there are certain adventure paths where there are lots of certain monsters and people read those adventure paths before playing them and build something that's like, Ooh, this is the best way to, you know, beat rise of the rune Lords, that sort of thing, which is fine if you're playing a video game by yourself, but it's not fun at the table unless everybody else is playing that way too. And I think that was a, a, a good point that you made that you know, it really is really unfun when somebody is playing that way at a, a table where that's not really the the way everybody else is playing. You know, I mean, there are ways to deal with it, right? As the dungeon master, you can always deal with things, but that was sort of um, anyway. The the point being, I thought that was a really good discussion about why it's not really fun to play with sort of power gamey types, but that at the same time, a certain level of mechanical minded decision-making is totally a thing, right? Like if you play a big fighter with a two-handed sword, 
versus playing a big fighter with a dagger. So you're doing like 1d4 damage versus 1d12 damage. Like the DM, you know, most of the time when you see that, it's somebody who doesn't really know how the damage works and doesn't understand like the difference between hitting an uh, an eight hit point creature and doing, you know, 1d12 damage versus doing 1d4 damage. And that isn't really... You know, if everybody's in that position where they're just like, yeah, let's all use daggers because daggers are cool. It's sort of like that. That's not really a game that I would run, probably. But, you know, more power to you if you want to do that. But there is really, I think. And and one of the things that mechanically minded play signifies is thought that that players who are thinking mechanically have thought about the rules, have thought about the world, have thought about kind of how the game works and are trying to engage with that. And I think that's really cool, right? That like not all mechanically minded decisions are min maxi bullshit. Some of them are just players trying to understand like, okay, I want my fighter to be able to kill things regularly because this is a dangerous world. So when, when I hit the goblin, I want to be doing that D 12 damage and not that D four damage. And that's cool. It's cool when you have players who are thinking about that. And you know, that's not to say that you have to do that. If you really want to fight with the dagger, you know, go ahead. But it's nice when you get players who kind of believe in the world enough to make those sorts of decisions, I think. Um, and that's sort of one of the things that I think is also sometimes overlooked in the discussion of mechanically minded play, that it is it is significant of players thinking about these things. Oh, yeah, I, I agree um, 100% that... Uh being interested in, in the rules enough and the, the mechanics enough to to get into it, right, is actually awesome because you want people to get into the systems. And uh, and I actually am I'm a fan of, of, of making the weapon choices count, you know, in, in, especially in, long, in long-term games. I think uh, I play a lot of light games for, you know, one-shots and stuff, and, and I actually like systems where all the weapons do the same damage or whatever because you can then just create whatever silly character you want or epic character or whoever I'm calling um, but in a long-term game, I like the idea that your your fighter type might carry the two-handed sword because it does the most damage, but maybe it's too big to use in some places, so they carry a short sword, and then they might have an axe for some type of things, or a mace. You know, I definitely like the idea that you'd switch up your weapons. I think the main problem, problem it's not really a problem, obviously, but uh, the main thing that, that ends up happening, unfortunately, ooh, more seconds go by, that might have been Jason. Uh, the main thing that ends up happening that I see anyways is that there becomes this one true way that works. Um, you know, the two-handed sword always does the most damage. And, you you know, maybe your GM doesn't ever put you in a situation where that two-handed sword is not the best option. Uh, and if they do, you get mad, right? <laughs> I mean, I know that, that in games I've played, you know, it, like fifth edition would be the most kind of uh, – the closest game I have played that would have that min-maxi kind of uh, possibility, I guess you call it. Um, and I know that like, for instance, my character, I mean, you know, I had a cool weapon that I wanted to use, but it realized that very quickly that a very that a specific spell that my character had was just way more powerful. So even though I wanted to use the weapon, I, I, I made a mini of my character holding the weapon, which was a dagger. Um, you know, it was, it was a cool dagger that she recovered from the first adventure they were on. I made a mini from it at uh, Hero Forge and everything. But turns out that, that my blast uh, spell was way more powerful, and it would be stupid for me to not use that every single time in a lot of ways, like mechanically. So uh, I do feel like that unfortunately, or fortunately, I would want to look at it, um, we do often play games where the weapons don't matter. 
um, beyond the damage die. And, I, and that's a little unfortunate in my mind. I, I like the idea um, of weapons mattering a lot, um, but I also like a simpler game. So <laughs> who knows what's right or wrong, right? But it's all fun in the end. And I think if your players engage with it, um, as long as they're engaging in a way that everybody at the table wants to engage, either they're, everybody's building these these super specific characters that are great at one thing, and then it's like, oh, we're going to do this move together. You trip them, then I'll you know, do this move that, that I'm good at doing when they're on the ground. Maybe I grapple them or whatever. You know, that can also be awesome. So there's, there's great ways to do it. I just think that a lot of times when we imagine the uh, the min-max or the evil min-max, you know, hiding in the shadows that, uh, you know, that everybody talks about, we imagine this person that's like a loner and just trying to like beat everybody else. But that's not always the case. Sometimes people do want to build characters that are awesome and can build them as teams um, in a really effective way. Um, but, in, and as you said, they're, if they're engaging with the system, it's good. As long as they're engaging in a way that everybody in that particular table, or at least the majority <laughs> of the people at the table are doing it. And, you know, insofar as like researching the adventure paths and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that kind of thing. I like to be surprised on some level. I could see Joe, Joe, if you're listening, <laughs> saying it might be realistic if you knew you were going to go down this, you know, route that you would have researched it. Yeah. I also can see that too. So uh, on some level, I don't know if I'd want to read it because uh, it would take away the fun for me because I'm I'm a person that doesn't like spoilers, <laughs> which was a different conversation, right? Um, but I think it would be useful. You, you definitely don't want to build a character out uh, in a vacuum. I think that's what Session Zero is good for, right? Where you can say, like, you have this plan to build this heavy plate mail fighting uh, guy with the, with the big sword and everything, and then the GM tells you on the, in the first session, you know, no warning, oh, yeah, you're going to be on canoes the whole time. I mean... <laughs> You don't want that, right? Or, you know, you've, you've built this water cleric and they you end up being in the desert, although maybe that'd be good. You know, so yeah, you definitely want to have some information about the adventure path, but not every detail. You know, you want to build what you think might be the best thing. I mean, I think that a lot of these games do a pretty good job to it, allowing you to uh, direct your character build as you go. So if you find yourself suddenly in a desert, you could take a desert uh, feat or whatever, Um so that's also pretty good. So, you know, I, I think there's that, that level too. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I never like to say anything's wrong. You know, I'm definitely, I have my, my personal uh, preference as to how to play. Um, but I think you're right. You make a really good point that people are, who are engaging with the rules mechanically are still engaging with the rules. And that means they're interested in your game and that's what you want interested players, but also, right. It can take away fun if people aren't playing, if they aren't on the same page, I guess we'll say. So yeah. Awesome. Good. Really great thoughts. So I was also going to comment on your discussion of levels and the value of levels. And um, I really agree with you about the idea of earning a chance to be a badass. That's what I love from a lot of different styles of games is the idea that you, you know, you have kind of fought through those hard to win levels and get to the point where, you know, you get a random encounter with six goblins and it's like, okay, my fighter's just going to cleave through them in a second. And that's going to be awesome because the goblins and I know that, and that's like, yeah, tables have turned, buddy. That's really cool. That's why, for instance, when I play Skyrim, I often play with the Requiem mod, which de-levels the world. Basically it makes all the monsters and the treasure not associated with your level because a lot of the stuff in Skyrim is basically randomly generated based on your level as you move through it. So if you make it not associated with your level, what happens is that the dungeons become... I'm just going to interject here to say that I'm not a video game person, but that sounds so awesome. I mean, the technology to be able to like associate stuff, associate stuff with your level or not, as I guess he's about to get into, um, 
seems pretty awesome. So anyways, back to it, Arlen. Vastly more chaotic. And like sometimes you actually have to run from dungeons because a big bad monster will spawn, you know, a Draugr that's built for fighting like a level 60 character and your level 10 will spawn and you just have to, you know, run because it's, you know, nasty or load a previous save game or something like that. But the trade-off is that at the end of that kind of arc of the character, when you're a badass and the, you know, Draugr that's built for fighting level 60 characters comes in and you're level 150 and you've got, you know, crazy maxed out armor and weapons and magic and all that sort of stuff. It's an awesome feeling to just sort of waltz through a dungeon as a total badass. And it also creates this feeling of verisimilitude, I think, in the world. One of the things that really bothers me with normal Skyrim is the way that all the wolves turn into bears around level 20 or so, right? And that's because in the wilderness encounter, the wilderness encounter generator, it uses uses wolves and bears as basically the same kind of natural predator encounter and it's just scaled to your level so what happens is all of the wolves turn into bears somewhere along the way and that feels like ridiculous it's totally absurd how you're wandering through skyrim as a low level character and there's wolves all around and then you you know get to level 30 and suddenly it's full of bears and you're like what what the hell happened to this place um but anyway the point that i'm making is that i think the the feeling of Earning that kind of badassness is something that uh, low or not low level that um, more OSR games do really well, especially like if you use a consistent random encounter um, generation system, you know, this part of the world, you encounter 1d6 goblins every couple of days most of the time. Well, that's going to feel really different when you're at level eight than it does at level two. And that's really cool, I think. So that's amazing that all the wolves turn into bears. You know, this is kind of how I, I guess if I hadn't actually played an extended campaign in 5th edition, this is kind of how I imagine 5th edition running because you're supposed to, right, use the challenge levels. Um, But what I found, I think, is that, uh, and again, I don't know Skyrim, I don't know the video games, but I think that most people play RPGs or we'll say a decent amount of people play RPGs in a more like a a scene-based way. Like they like cutscenes, they jump from place to place. So I think that's why everything being at your level doesn't feel as weird um, as it would in that case, where like all of a sudden everything jumps up. But yeah, you do definitely long for goblins, right? In in uh, in let's say fifth edition, once you get to higher levels, and it's hard to use them without creating some kind of custom powerful goblin because the thing is, you can't just add more goblins because of uh, you know. Uh, no, not not bounded accuracy. What's the other thing? Action economy, right? So you can't, for instance, uh, let's say a first level group of four players can fight off ten goblins. Ten goblins, four goblins, right? You can't take a fifth level group and have them fight off a hundred goblins. I mean, maybe if they have AOE powers and stuff, but just generally speaking, let's say they're just fighters, right? Because they would they would have actually they would lose eventually because they would just get overpowered, which maybe is realistic, but isn't so heroic. <laughs> That's one reason why switching to more of a war gamey uh, vibe when you get to that that number of things might be interesting. So uh, there I go pitching chainmail again. But anyways, uh, I'm still talking about levels. This is really super interesting. To speak a little more about the idea of becoming a badass by leveling, I played in a fairly long, well, the game's still going and it has become fairly long, game where the dungeon master was using old school rules and was using things like random encounters, but basically 
would change the random encounter tables in relation to our character's level and abilities for the same area all the time based on kind of our characters leveling up and things like that. So for instance, I would joke about the fact that like the goblin random encounter on this one stretch of river that we traversed a lot was basically like our level in the eights of goblins because we started off fighting like five or six goblins there. And by the time I left, it was like, you know, there are 20 or 30 goblins in this random encounter. And that to me felt just awful. Like, by the time that we were, I was sort of towards the end of my time in that campaign, whenever people would ask, you know, people would ask about like, what was my character thinking? I would always say like, we should join the bad guys. Like the bad guys are clearly vastly more competent and capable than the good guys in this world. And I, one time, you know, the DM sort of snapped at me about metagaming with that. I sort of snapped back that like, look, if we have gone from level one to seven and the rest of the bad guys have gone from the equivalent of like stuff facing level one characters to stuff that faces level seven characters. None of the good guys have gone through this except us, right? Like that's okay for us because every time we run into goblins, we can still defeat them. But the merchant caravans, the city guards, all of the other people in the world, they're going to get their asses kicked every time they leave the safety of the town walls, basically. And that was sort of my point about how this character living in essentially a leveled world would perceive it because I, and I think it's true that a character living in a leveled world where the good guys aren't leveled, but the bad guys are would immediately go to why is it that, you know, the goblins are in, you know, within three years of me coming to this region of the world. Why is it that there are now 20 goblins in every goblin attack instead of five? Like, doesn't that say something about the threat that is rapidly growing? And it, there were a number of reasons that I quit the campaign, but one of them was it felt like leveling up wasn't worth anything because I knew that we were just going to have to fight worse stuff. Because in like the same area, the same like part of the map, it wasn't. And that sort of ties to, I think, another problem with that campaign, which is I, I feel like the DM of that campaign did not really trust the players to create interesting things. And so he felt like because he is the sort of person who basically feels like the only interesting combat is a desperate combat, which I think is total bullshit. Um, he basically felt like, okay, if we're going to have interesting stuff, it has to be me creating the interesting desperate combat with random encounters. I can't trust my players to throw themselves into the deep end to have, you know, exciting encounters with the stuff that is further afield. So we've got to make the goblins more deadly, right? We got to add more goblins to make sure that all these fights with the goblins are exciting. And I think that is, well... That's totally contrary to the way that I run games, especially nowadays, that a lot of even with sort of more modern rule sets, I really like the idea of like, yeah, if you're in the woods that are sort of rated for level one characters to use like video game terms, you're going to encounter level one rated stuff. Now you're going to encounter treasure that's equivalent to the level one rated stuff. So, you know. If you're near civilization and all you do is take, you know, day treks out to the dungeons, there are other adventurers who have probably done that or are doing that. And so no wonder you're not getting very good treasure. But hopefully, 
And I think you would be uh, remiss to say that it's not just hopefully, this is what happens. So the players, because they're engaged and interested in playing in the world and all that sort of stuff, they go, hey, wait a second, let's go further afield next time to try to get more treasure or to face more badass monsters or things like that. Because they want to play interesting games, right? So anyway, the the I think the best version of that is in my... Um, uh, Ash Valeria game so far where the player characters have really come to recognize that like the area that they're in is mostly populated by ape men in the jungles and at first they were a pretty serious threat but now the characters are all level 3 so so the characters don't need to worry about running into ape men as much now but they also know that the treasure isn't as good out here, right? If they go further afield, they're going to run into, you know, the lizard men and the lizard men have two hit dice instead of one hit dice. And they travel in packs of like two D eight instead of one D eight. And Ooh, isn't that that interesting? Because now we know that there's like a deadlier threat out there. They probably have more treasure because other adventurers haven't picked over those dungeons yet. So, Let's go, let's go, you know, fight our way through the eight men and go to where the lizard men live and that sort of thing. And that I think is really cool. That is like what I want from this kind of old school organic development of a world. But anyway, the, the point that I'm getting at is I totally agree with you about the idea that like it's really fun to earn that sense of being having a very different relationship to the world as you progress through a game. Yeah, I think it's all super interesting. And that's a really good point about your, uh, your campaign, you know, that they know this area is, is it's got the ape men. And then if they go, when they went further, it was more deadly with the lizard men and Hey, less powerful people or less experienced people haven't made it out this far. So clearly there's going to be more treasure. It hasn't been picked over as they say. Right. Um, I think the only downside in my experience playing games like this is that when they, let's say they get to like sixth, seventh level, and now the ape men are just table time wasted because it's uh, it's too easy, right? At that point, what I generally do um, is I just hand wave stuff like that. Either they know the path well enough, the ape men have heard of them, so they stay away from them, um, or you know, uh, or I narrate it if they have to. I'll just be like, well, you know, you encountered a few ape men, they ran, whatever. Because I feel like you don't want to waste your table time, you know, half of your game uh, fighting stuff that you that can't beat you, right? Or uh, typically, um, that's actually my problem with that whole Tucker's Cobalt thing. I think I made a video. I think I made a video or an audio about the camera about this idea of like just let the characters get past the weak stuff. But when they're in those mid levels, like you say, the third level, that's so great because they're making it. They're making a choice, right? They can go in there and be like, you know what? Let's pick over this closer stuff and get some treasure because we need to buy some stuff right now. We need the gold. Let's just get in and out. Or they can be like, let's go deeper and get some real treasure. Let's get the, the treasure nobody's seen before. I love that. And, and so far, all the, um, the the videos that you've done, the, the podcast where people have talked about that campaign, it sounds really awesome. So, cool. All right. I think that's going to be it for me for a little while. That was a whole bunch of call-ins. So hopefully I didn't kind of completely flood your uh, podcast with all of that, although I suspect I did. I'm going to go listen to the episode on Clumsy Rogues now and uh, maybe even call in after that one because, you know, hopefully there will be, I, I suspect knowing your podcast that there will be something worth commenting on in that episode. So anyway, that's it for me for a little while. Take care, man, and I will talk to you soon. Okay, so I've got a whole bunch of messages here from Arlen that are titled uh, Structuralism. Um, but the first one I have is number two. So I guess number one never made it. Uh, and I'm 
pretty sure that's the case because in number two, he's kind of mid-sentence here. So uh, we'll let him go, and then uh, I'll see if I can figure out what I missed. <laughs> or at least because you're aware of the difference between winning and losing and are, you know, if not actually engaging with that, at least aware of that possibility. That if you didn't know what the difference between winning and losing a game of chess was, you would essentially have no capacity to understand why any of the chess rules mean anything, right? It's totally built on this unwritten rule that is outside of the rules of playing chess itself. So anyway, skip forward to role-playing games. Now, role-playing games, of course, are not chess. And as people have talked about with winning and losing and all that sort of stuff, there's sort of no way to win and no way to lose and all that sort of stuff. But role-playing games do engage with they do have structure to engage with the game. They do something in some way similar to chess in the way that they provide an incentive structure, right? Most of them are built on the principle that uh, advancement is key to playing the role-playing game. That it's not just about having fun with your friends because you could you could have fun with your friends doing anything, right? You could play video games or play poker or, you know, smoke cigars or get drunk or whatever. There's all sorts of other things you could do. I realize that's kind of a, a weighted list of things you could do, but there's all sorts of other things you could do with your friends to have fun. The sort of argument of the game at its core is you could have more fun with your friends by doing this and you could have more fun in the game by being better at the things that your character is expected to do in general. That's sort of the core incentive structure of a lot of these games, right? So that's XP, right? Leveling up gives you a better chance at doing the things that your character wants to do, essentially, right? So if you're a fighter, you get more hit points and you get better at hitting things. If you're a wizard, you get more spells. If you're a thief, you get better at doing thiefy stuff. And this is even more true, I think, in modern games than it is in old school D&D. But at its core, this is something that is... I'm just going to jump in here because it was between messages, even though he's in the middle of a thought. But uh, maybe this might be controversial. We'll see. But I don't think – I don't stand by this whole you can't win or lose in RPGs. I, I feel like the reason why they wrote that that way in the first versions of D&D was because they were coming from a war game background where it was clearly two players playing against each other and one of them won and one of them lost. Or you're playing Monopoly, right, and somebody wins. And an RPG is different in that case because it's an ongoing game. It's a story, but you still win. I mean, you you, you win by finishing the quest, by getting more gold than everybody else. You win by – you lose by dying, I guess, you know, or by not completing the quest and still surviving. So there's moments, maybe more like life, where you can win and lose, but the overall game is never necessarily won or lost. So I guess that's what they mean there, but I, I – yeah, I, I do think there is an idea of winning in d and I mean, people joke about it, but like when you finish a dungeon or you kill this this evil guy that, that you've been chasing through your campaign, you won. I mean, you know, you won at d and I mean, in my mind, that is 100% a thing. Um, I mean, maybe it's easy to say you can't really lose, although I guess if you have a really terrible uh, group and you fight all the time and that kind of stuff, that's probably losing more so than not completing the quest because in the end, if you have fun and you're hanging out with your friends, then more fun than smoking cigars and doing that. In fact, you could smoke cigars, drink uh, whiskey, and play D&D. Well, I guess you could do that with video games, too. I don't know. Anyways, let's get back to Arlen. 
really central to the game part of RPG, that it's the difference between role-playing and just having fun telling stories together and playing a game has to do with this incentive structure, right? That's that's part of what we mean when we say system matters and all that sort of stuff. And anyway, I'm getting a little bit off track. And there are some other games to, to get more off track. There are some other games that do this really explicitly, like, right? Like Burning Wheel is totally built on the idea that like to play the game, characters... To engage with the game, characters have to want to get better at the things that they do, right? They have to, because the whole kind of structure of the game is built around this incentive cycle with the Artha. Anyway, the point that I'm getting at is that I think when people say, well, you could just role play, you know, you could just play a clumsy thief and all that sort of stuff, is that they're really ignoring, they're essentially playing chess without playing to win, right? They're ignoring the game part of the game in a lot of ways, not in as not in a way that is quite as fundamental as playing chess without understanding the difference between winning and losing, but in a pretty fundamental way, right? If you're just, you know, playing the game without any awareness of or engagement with these kind of incentive structures, are you really playing the game? Is and that's sort of my point with a lot of this discussion is that like, yes, there are all sorts of other things you could do and other ways to work with it, but that's not really playing the game, right? And that's sort of the same way I feel uh, actually about a lot of kind of old school stuff where people are like, well, you can just, you know, role play it out. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's not really the game. That's just talking. Anyway, that's a different argument. But what I'm getting at is this idea that I think a lot of the discussion about just role play it out, it is true that you can just role play it out. But that's not really playing the game, at least the way that the game is written and structured. Okay, so here I think I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I think that you are right, and, and I think it matters, right? It was, but we're talking about, uh, I guess in this conversation, we're talking about the difference between like a more modern game, like let's say 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, which is, like, is what I was talking about. Yeah, you would not be playing the game correctly to have a low dex rogue. It wouldn't make sense. Your abilities would suffer. It just, you would not be playing to win. In an OSR game, though, since your ability scores mean little uh, to nothing, except I granted the XP, which obviously is a thing, right? Uh, you are not hurting yourself as much. And I think that the part where I'm going to disagree is the role play part of it. I think the more simplified the game is, the more role play happens. And my understanding, and of course I wasn't there, I was, I mean, I was born, but I was an infant when D&D was created. Um, is that most of the stuff before they started adding skill systems and stuff, the people who created D&D and the way it was created to be played was, in fact, role-playing it out. You want to pick a lock? Tell me how you're doing it. You want to climb that wall? Tell me how you're doing it. You want to convince the guards that you're actually here to, to deliver, you know, uh, some uh, pies? Tell me how you're doing it. And that was the game. So when you look at uh, old school games trying to capture that style, that's what I think they're doing. So in fact, you are playing the game when you role play. I would say if you're playing something like original Dungeons & Dragons, or even as far as like, let's say BX, uh, less so as you progress um, through the editions, I think that if you can get through an entire session rolling minimal dice, you've done a good job. And I mentioned the dice only because that's the dice are what tests the mechanics, right? So that's the thing. So to me, if somebody says, hey, can I try to follow the tracks of this horse? And they say to me, well, you don't have track horse skill. 
that's a sure sign to me that you're playing a more modern game and they, to engage with that game, you would have had to have put points in track course and that's basically how you do it. In an, in an OSR game, or especially if you go all the way back to OD&D, there is no track horse skill. So the DM's going to say, uh, okay, you want to track the horse? How, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to look around and I see there's lots of footprints in this one area where it was settled. Is there any particular path where I see like a, it's more worn or do I see, you know, uh, branches broken in the trees? Now I'm engaging with the game. That is the game. And that's what I was saying before. Um, I said, I mean, this is going cross podcast, obviously. It was something I think I made a comment on Joe's podcast where I said, where he said the combat isn't role play, but see, to me, the entire game is role play. The talking about skills is role play. The how do you fight is role play. If you are playing the game just rolling a d20 and scoring against an armor class, that's fine. That works. And that's the mechanics. That's what you're talking about. But if you're saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to run off to the side where I see those boulders and I'm going to try to wedge my 10 foot pole in there and roll the boulders across to uh, block off so no more orcs can enter the space. That is role play. That is talking, and that is not mechanically, at least in most old school games, mechanically in the game. It's something the DM has to figure out, which goes back to the ruling schools. Like, wow, everything go, we go full circle. So I think here I disagree slightly that um, you're by playing a character that is not optimized. This is what we're talking about here. Uh, you're not engaging with the game. I think it depends on the game, and I would 100% agree with you in a more modern game. But in an older game, I don't think it matters as much. Uh, although I will say you're right because it does matter at least a little bit, let's say for the XP. So I guess if you, in the strictest sense, you're right, but I don't think it matters as much in an older game as it does in a newer game. But yeah, though, you're making some uh, awesome points. I do really like the, the chess analogy. It's one of the best <laughs> conversations about this that we've had. I think it's a really good way to put it uh, in the engagement with the game. So yeah, awesome. Which is not to say that you can't make your own game out of it. If what you want to do is sit around the campfire and tell stories with your friends where you don't roll dice at all, that's fine, but that's not playing an RPG. And I think this is an important distinction to recognize that these games, in as much as they are games, do have structures that are either engaged with or ignored by the players. And when they are ignored, that means something, right? So when you play a thief or a rogue with eight dexterity in fifth edition, you're essentially ignoring the core system by which the system itself is trying to structure your experience. And so you're not really engaging with the game, at least as written, which is not to say that your game can't be something else. And I think that's an important point to make too, that your game doesn't have to be the game that Wizards of the Coast put out, but acting like your game is the game that Wizards of the Coast put out when you're playing a rogue with eight dexterity is dumb. So clearly, even on my own podcast, I don't finish listening before I make a comment. <laughs> yes, exactly. We are in the 100% of the same page. All right, then. That was pretty awesome. Thanks, Arlen. Lots of good, good info there. Lots of great opinions. Uh, you know, th I've, I've been loving all the back and forth we've been having on the different podcasts and, uh, and on the Audio Dungeon Discord. So I thank everybody. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, I will try to answer the rest of the calls as they come in. And uh, yeah, guys, be well, and I'll talk to you soon.